This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have seen soaring increase in the number of renters over the last several years, and with that has come increases in the price of rentals. But in the last several months, those prices have eased a bit, even in some of America's biggest cities. A trend going on now shows that in more expensive places, rents at the top are declining while cheaper prices are seeing an increase, which impacts those people who can least afford to pay the higher rent. We delve into this story with Benjamin Keyes, assistant professor at the Wharton School in the real estate department. He's also a faculty fellow with the National Bureau of Economic Research. Also joining us on the phone, Aaron Terrazas, who is a senior economist at Zillow.com. And also joining us is uh, Jenny Schutz, who is a fellow in the Brookings Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program. Ben, great seeing you again. Thank you very much for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Aaron, Jenny, thank you for your time today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So th- this is interesting, Ben. I mean, seeing this adjustment in pricing, especially at the lower end where the prices are either staying the same or going up, I think a lot of people would assume if rents are going down, rents are going down across the board. Yeah, and I think what this latest data is telling us is that there are a lot of different submarkets within a, within a given metro area and that when you look at where the building has been going on and you look at the construction it's really been geared at the very top. And so you've seen a lot more construction for high-end high-end apartment buildings, more luxury apartments in the large cities. And we can talk about why that's the case. Uh, but that increase in supply is driving is slowly driving down some of the price pressures that have been put on the rental market over the last 10 years or so. Uh, and you're not seeing that same construction at the lower end. And so you're getting this discrepancy between the top and the bottom. So why then are these builders then taking this seemingly pattern uh, of trying to adjust these, these prices? It almost feels like they're trying to make up for some of the lost revenue on the high end. Yeah, well, I think some of it is is just uh, a simple supply and demand story that there are still a lot of low income renters who are desperate for for housing. Um, it's a it's a necessity, and um, and people want to be where the jobs are, and those jobs tend to be in in the cities these days that are the highest cost cities. Aaron, what are you seeing from uh, from Zillow's perspective? No, I, I think Ben's right. Kind of, we're we're seeing this divergence of trends um, ac- across the rental market. You know, at this point in the business cycle, uh, you know, we've been saying it's important to look beyond the, the, the middle of the, the distribution. We typically talk about the housing market in medians and averages, but more and more that that's not um, kind of the most meaningful way to look at it. You have to look at the tails of the distribution, what's happening at the top, what's happening at the bottom. Um, and, and of course, there has been a lot more construction, a lot more investment at the top of the market. Naturally, that would kind of influence um, influence kind of prices. But not only has it been a supply story, I think over the past year, year and a half, it's also been a demand story. Those higher income young adults uh, who typically rent those higher priced apartments have been out buying homes. Uh, the labor market is very tight. Interest rates are still, you know, despite having risen a little bit, still relatively low. Those are the, the people who have been out kind of propelling the, the purchase market that's leaving vacancies in, in the rental market. That's not happening for, for lower income renters still. Jenny, what are you seeing? Yeah, I think one of the interesting questions is why we haven't seen um, rents start to soften a little bit farther down the the price spectrum. And some of this is really a question of how long it's going to take for the filtering process to work 
and whether we're going to be able to catch up with essentially decades of underbuilding apartments. Um, so we've certainly seen a boom in construction in the last several years, but of course that comes after uh, the absolute trough in the Great Recession, and really we've been underbuilding multifamily housing for about 25 years now. So we're seeing finally supply starting to catch up at the high end. We would expect that eventually that's going to translate into at least more stable rents in the middle of the distribution and possibly lower, but it's going to take a while for that to happen. But you, you did a, an article, a paper recently talking about this issue, and you looked at it from the policy perspective about the, the fact that we need to address this better housing policy, uh, I, I would imagine, on a variety of different levels up and down the, uh, the political spectrum. Absolutely. And it's important to realize that there are at least two different housing affordability problems happening in different parts of the country. In high-cost cities like New York and San Francisco and D.C., the problem is really that we haven't built enough housing supply, and so prices are very high even for middle-income households. Um, And so you get, for instance, relatively high-income renters who can't afford to buy a house, and so they're staying in the apartment market longer. That's still a pretty localized problem, but at the bottom end of the income distribution, say the bottom 20 uh, to 25% of households just don't earn enough income to pay for market rate rents, even in pretty modest quality apartments. So that's part of what we're seeing is that we've got a lot of people who are competing for the bottom end of the market. They have no place else to go, and their incomes just haven't been keeping up with the regular cost of inflation and maintenance of apartment buildings. So how much of this really is a, is a city-level issue at this point, Jenny? We still see pretty big differences in the rent levels and how much affordability is an issue for the middle and higher income tiers. That seems to be pretty localized. The problem that low-income families can't afford to pay the rent, that's pretty much a national problem. Uh, Rents, of course, are going to be lower in, uh, say, rural Texas or in Detroit, but the incomes are also proportionately lower. So basically, poor families can't afford to pay the rent pretty much anywhere. Middle-income families are only stretched in the high-cost market. How much do you think Ben, policy can start to address this, at least understanding that differentiation in terms of what's being built in a lot of these cities. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of directions for for policymakers to go in here. And I think Jenny raises a number of these uh, really smartly in her article. I mean, the, the at the at the first problem that she raised in terms of the expensive cities where a lot of jobs are, these are the desirable cities like New York, San Francisco. Yeah. It's really an issue about building and not building enough. And there are a number of barriers to building, but a, a, a big constraint is local zoning policy that's, that inhibits uh, more dense building and especially dense building around transit. So um, so reducing the dependence on, on cars and, and increasing traffic. Um, and a lot of cities um, are really struggling with uh, with the barriers that, that have been put in place um, through that type of restrictive zoning. Uh, the second problem is... is um, as, jo- as Jenny mentioned, is a, is a national problem in thinking about um, lower income households um, struggling to to pay their rent, and I think it's useful to, to think about the role that uh, that the federal government can play if it was um, if it was interested in playing this role. Um, and then you look at you look at what HUD has been doing uh, recently in a, mm-hmm. a recent New York Times uh, piece. Um, you know, mentioned that that HUD has really stayed on the sidelines. Um, in, in the, the current administration in terms of uh, pushing policy forward. And uh, that's a very politically correct way to say um, how, how I would view what, what's going on. Uh, but when we think about the safety net for low-income households, um, you know, the safety net's very elastic mm-hmm. for things like unemployment insurance or, or food stamps. Um, 
when there are more people who who need help, those programs expand in, in sort of automatic ways. And we think about those as being automatic stabilizers. And we just simply don't have that same elasticity for housing policy. So um, even though the number of, you know, families that are very low income and could really benefit from from help with uh, with paying the rent, um, you know, the funding for those types of, of programs, vouchers, public housing, other types of services stays relatively static, um, just doesn't expand the way that these other services do. Which obviously puts a lot of people in, in, in a tough situation when you're talking about needing to have a roof over your head. And Aaron, that obviously would bring a concern forward of whether or not not having better policy where, where housing is concerned, if that's going to potentially increase the issue of homelessness here in, in America. That, that, that's right. We've done a lot of research around the relationship between rising rents and, and, and homelessness. And, you know, in many of these high-priced cities, that is a, a tight relationship. But I also wanted to touch quickly on, on something that, that Jenny had mentioned. Kind of she raised this point that we're in this waiting moment right now, kind of waiting to see how long um, slower price appreciation at the top of the market filters down to the bottom of the market. And, and I think that's something that kind of, you know, in, in theory should happen. But there are a lot of practical barriers to that. You know, our, um, the partner website Hotpads recently did a report looking at rents for different types of units for two bedrooms versus one bedrooms, and it shows that the slowdown in rent appreciation has been strongest for those one bedroom and studio apartments. That's kind of what we've been building. We have not been really building two or three bedroom apartments, and, right. and that distinction is important because. Um, you know, younger, higher income kind of renters are probably going to be renting a smaller unit, whereas uh, families, families who rent are, are probably going to be renting a two or three bedroom unit. Um, and, and that's kind of those lower income families are not seeing a lot of supply growth in, in the market. Um, and, and as you kind of return to where you started, those are the, fam- those are the people who are often um, at risk of, of kind of losing, losing housing if, if they have an income shock, um, if, if their rent increases. Um, so, you, you know, a lot of the increase we've seen in, in recent years in homelessness has been families. Jenny? That's right. Um, I mean, Aaron hits on a really good point, which is that the markets are segmented, and sometimes there's some fluidity between the market segments, and sometimes there's not. Um, you know, one way to think about this is also where did low-cost housing come from, say, 20 years ago, 50 years ago? We've never been particularly good at building new housing at the bottom end of the market. Uh, There hasn't been enough subsidy to build this in large quantities. But typically what happens is that older existing housing becomes more affordable. And for instance, one of the ways that we've provided kind of larger family size units is to have um, houses, single family houses or townhouses, that are older and not in great condition, and those transition over to being rentals and are available. So Aaron's exactly right that we've been building studio one bedrooms, some two bedrooms, not more of the family size apartments. So we might expect there to be a little bit more um, looking at, uh, for instance, the houses, or even things like larger, older houses that can be subdivided into apartments, but have a little bit more flexibility to be divided up into these larger spaces. So the question is whether those older houses are being maintained um, and won't transition to being rentals or whether there is some softness there and we might see um, sort of a shift across either tenure or a shift across market segments. But it is interesting, Jenny, that, that you know we have such a unique dynamic going on in the, in the housing slash rental market right now. Uh, obviously, we've talked on this show about the fact that, uh, you know, millennials, as they have kind of made their way into the workforce, obviously we're waiting longer to, to decide to buy a house. 
and that obviously uh, really helped to prop up the rental market. You also had the, the at the same time, you had a lot of people that were dealing with houses that were foreclosed on and had to look for another option, and they were end up end up falling in the rental market. So you had this, this two-pronged attack to a degree of people just kind of having to use the rental market either because financially it made sense for them or uh, from a, f- a family perspective, they had to have that. That's right. And the fact that the rental market has been so strong really since the recession that so many people have realized that that's the right place for them for a longer period of their life, I think also raises some policy questions. Our federal policy traditionally has been very favorable towards owner-occupied housing, We spend far more money um, on subsidies for homeowners through the mortgage interest deduction than we do on direct subsidies, uh, rental subsidies for low-income families. I'm hoping that we might be in a policy moment where people realize the rental market is going to be part of almost everybody's life cycle. For some people, they will be renters permanently. For many people, they will be renters longer than their parents were. In that case, does it make sense for us to be imposing financial penalties on renters compared to homeowners? What do you think then would be the benefit of changing that kind of mindset and, and including renters more in the, in the potential financial breaks that, that traditional homeowners get? We'd like people to pick the tenure that's appropriate for their financial situation, their uh, place in the life cycle, their job situation. So, for instance, renters have an easier time breaking a lease and moving to a different city if they get a new job opportunity. People who haven't yet made permanent uh, family arrangements may need to change the size of the house they're living in if they get married or have kids. Um, So there's a lot of advantage to having some flexibility. We'd like households to be able to make those decisions based on their personal financial circumstances, not based on federal tax policy that gives them an incentive to buy when maybe that's not the best decision for them. It would be, Ben, a very interesting change in the mindset here in this country if you did have the, the, the advantages that homeowners get having some version of that with renters as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, we've rewarded homeowners uh, for a long time in a lot of ways through the tax code. And we also reward uh, homeowners using additional leverage, right? It's about uh, the interest that you're paying yeah. uh, on the mortgage yeah. and not just the homeownership. And so, um, and so it sort of skews the kind of, if we think of the debt versus equity uh, um, trade-off, it certainly skews things towards towards debt. And I think there, there, there are a lot of reasons to think that, um, that those benefits – um, and we've talked about this in the past that those benefits aren't really accruing to uh, to the marginal homeowner, right? So the, the a huge amount of those mortgage interest deduction benefits accrue to the top uh, the top, top ten or five percent of the income distribution. Uh, those were people who would be very likely to be homeowners anyway. So to the extent that we want to we want to encourage the American dream and sort of uh, get people into a home and the stability that that home can potentially provide as yeah. as, as a as a way to to uh, benefit a neighborhood as a way to build wealth. Uh, we don't think the mortgage interest deduction is really designed to do any of those things. But Aaron, it is interesting that maybe that mindset around whatever that, that the American dream is maybe needs to be adjusted now for, uh, for the year 2018 and beyond. Yeah. I, that, I mean, that, that's an interesting point. We've, we've heard so much about kind of the, the shifting preferences of, of Americans and this decision between renting and owning. Uh, you know, in some respects, it's, it's certainly evolving. In some respects, it's still very much the same. Kind of, we've surveyed um, Americans in, in the 20 largest metro areas and asked them, kind of, characterize your ideal home. Is it, is it owner-occupied? Is it renter-occupied? Is it, is it a single-family house? Is it an apartment? Is it a townhouse? Is it an urban or suburban or rural home? And, and overwhelmingly, um, across all age groups, including for, for millennials, for young adults, 
um, you know, that they, do, they still have that ideal of uh, an owner-occupied single-family house in the suburbs. Um, and that, I think, kind of, you know, is a little bit surprising, contrary to the popular narrative. That said, there certainly are shifts around the edges. You know, I think something like, um, you know, 13% of, of young adults say they prefer a townhouse versus 8% of, excuse me, of older adults. Um, so, so that American dream is, is certainly kind of still very much strong, but, but certainly evolving around the edges. Uh, on the question of kind of policy changes, there were obviously so many moving parts and changes in, in the tax reform bill that was enacted last year. But in some respects, the, the changes on net do begin to, to lift the Uncle Sam's finger a little bit away from, from the weight of, of, of pushing Americans toward homeownership. There were obviously caps to, to the mortgage interest deduction, uh, caps to, to the state and local tax deduction. Um, one part of the state and local tax deduction is the ability to deduct property taxes. That's something that owners can do. That's not something that, that renters can do, even though you know, renters do pay property taxes through their rent. Um, so, so you know th- that that was there were some changes. In addition, you know, um, kind of often overlooked in those conversations around tax reform was this notion that you know by capping those deductions for owner-occupied units, um, you know, there are some loopholes that allow an owner to deduct a larger portion of their state and local taxes if they rent out a portion of their house, a room, a, a granny flat, a mother-in-law suite. Um, so, you know, there is some expectation that that could marginally increase the supply and availability of these units if local zoning permits. What, Jenny, is being looked at at the at the government level, whether it be at the at the state, I guess in some cases, maybe even more so the federal level, uh, by Congress at this point to try and alleviate some of these issues surrounding housing? So there are a number of proposals coming out um, from individual legislators at the federal level. Um, so both uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker have recently put out proposals to create essentially a renter tax credit, balancing out something like the mortgage interest deduction that homeowners get um, for renters who pay more than 30% of their income on rent, so targeting to to cost-burdened renters. Um, Cory Booker's also ties um, some federal funding to localities that relax their zoning. Um, So we don't necessarily want to reward places that have barriers to new construction by giving them more money. So he would make um, their community development block grant funds contingent on developing strategies for more inclusive zoning. Um, At the state level, California is seeing a lot of activity. This past year, uh, one of the uh, state senators, Scott Wiener, introduced a bill that was really very radical, suggesting that the state could override local zoning and allow um, up to, I believe, four-story apartment buildings built around transit stations, even if local zoning didn't support that. That's a huge proposal. That's different than anything we've ever seen before. Unfortunately, it went down in committee. It didn't even make it to the full legislature for vote. But I imagine that something like that probably will make a reappearance. California is also contemplating um, expanding rent control. There are a number of cities in California that still have rent control as a legacy of the 70s. And in November, they'll be voting on whether to expand rent control to newer buildings. Um, That's an extremely controversial proposal. Um, We have quite a bit of evidence that rent control winds up reducing the housing stock and actually hurting poor families. Um, But there are sort of interesting coalitions building around that because there's such a sense in the high-cost cities that rent has just been going up faster than income, and this is a measure to try to help. But anything realistically around rent control would be specifically looking and targeting these these higher-rent cities, correct, anyway, right? 
Yes, um, I mean the. the Part of the, uh, the current policies on rent control, it's um, only allowed to be imposed on older buildings, so pre-1978 or 1979, and the proposal would be that rent control could be applied to newer buildings. I'm not sure how they've got this formulated, whether each individual city would decide what it would apply to, because the, the rent control ordinances are city-specific, um, but this would be a statewide lifting of the ban for rent control to apply to newer units. I know Berkeley, for instance, is already trying to figure out if this um, passes, how long of a lag for new construction they would wait before rent control goes into effect. So the idea would be something that gets built next year wouldn't be rent controlled immediately, but after, say, 10 or 15 years after construction, then uh, rent controls would go into effect. But some of these ideas that you rattled off uh, by, by various members of Congress, how much of a fix are they to this entire problem? Well, Kamala Harris's bill really only addresses the demand side, um, and so that's not going to help in high-cost locations. Because giving more money to renters without allowing supply to expand is only going to drive rents up further, and that makes the landlords happy, but that's not, in fact, going to fix the problem. Cory Booker's at least goes in the right direction of addressing the supply side as well. There are two pretty substantial limitations. One is he's only talking about tying community development block grant funds um, to revised zoning. And CDBG funds mostly go to larger cities or urban counties. It doesn't touch the suburbs, who tend to be the most exclusionary. So it's not going to be much of an incentive for them. Second, he's really only asking them to revise their zoning on paper. And we know from past experience that places can make their zoning look like it's growth-friendly and not actually build things. Um, so to be really effective, you'd want to have incentives for increased levels of production and make them actually build the housing. Ben? I, I think you know Jenny did a great job summarizing the, the proposals that are on the table from a lot of these uh, both federal positions and, and state positions. So I'll just jump back to two other policy yeah. issues that I think are important. So one is related to the cost of building and, and related to the tariffs that are currently in sure. place combined yeah. with uh, restrictive immigration. Um, and those are driving up both material costs and labor costs for for construction. And and home builders are, are really, you know, um, somewhat more outspoken than a lot of others right now um, about the pain that they're feeling from uh, from both of those those policies. Um, the other the other one um, in Aaron's discussion of the of the tax bill um, is that by lowering the corporate uh, corporate income tax, um, that actually reduces the benefit of the income uh, of the tax credits that are used through the LIHTC program, so the Low Income Housing Tax Credit program. Um, and there are there, you know, there's a real question there about whether that program is going to be sustainable mm-hmm. going forward, and certainly whether it's going to be large enough um, to replace the number of units that are where the where the credits are um, are expiring or the limits on the um, on the lower rents are expiring. So the way that these projects work, and it's a little bit more involved than we probably have time for, uh, but there's sort of a, a cap on rents that are yeah. that's put in place and is attached to um, to these tax credits. Um, and at some point in time, uh, after the building has been around for a while, then then the rents can reset to market rents. And there's a question whether you know there can be enough building to offset the the pace with which some of those um, rent caps are expiring. But what kind of a time frame would you be looking at at potentially having that that measure from going from having that cap to then going back to market? Yeah. So the statistic that I that I've seen from uh, from the Joint Center of Housing Studies at Harvard says that about half a million units um, will be losing their uh, their affordability uh, requirements over the next decade. 
Um, so that's a sizable number, and you yeah. need some some dramatic construction in, in that area to keep up. I, I guess, Aaron, the, the question becomes is where we are headed uh, as a country right now, just with the mindset uh, surrounding the idea of renting versus owning a home at this point. Uh, for the last several years, obviously, for many people, it has been uh, better for them to be able to rent rather than own a home. But it seems like a lot of times that's cyclical, and whether or not millennials are starting to you know to look at buying a home or buying a townhome in a city one way or the other, uh, that that we could see a shift back to having more people wanting to buy in the next 10 to 20 years or so. Millennials certainly have been buying over the past year and a half. And we know two weeks ago, we just had the most recent quarterly homeownership rate data. We saw a big jump in the homeownership rate among young adults, the under 35 um, households. That's a reflection of the buying activity that we, we've seen. So I, I don't think there's any doubt that buying kind of is going to continue holding a, a strong appeal in the American imagination. That, you know, there's something um, kind of fundamentally attractive about fixing your housing costs for 30 years as opposed to being subject to, to one-year, you know, 12-month contracts. Um, that's not going to disappear, and whatever we do with the tax code um, you know, slightly remove kind of some of the, the tax benefits to homeownership, right? That, that appeal of fixed housing costs for, for a long term, um, the appeal of, you know, asset appreciation is going to still be there. And so I think Americans are going to continue to want to buy homes, whether or not they'll be able to do it, you know, at 28 versus 32, um, you know, before or after they, they start their families, you know, maybe we'll, we'll see some shifts there. Um, but, but, you know, I think kind of we're, we're going to continue to see the strong majority of Americans being homeowners. It's going to be a little bit more difficult with, with mortgage rates rising um, and, and prices rising in, in many of these markets. Um, so I think we've seen a slowdown in the rental market. I, I, I think it's going to, there's going to be a steady flow of demand, um, even as, you know, as mortgage rates rise, as it becomes a little more difficult for, for people to buy their first home. Great having you all with us. Uh, Aaron, thank you for uh, joining us on the phone. Jenny, thank you as well. Thank you. Thank you both. Ben, great seeing you, and thank you for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Benjamin Keyes from here at the Wharton School in the Real Estate Department, Aaron Terrazas from uh, Zillow.com, and uh, Jenny Schutz, who is uh, with the Brookings Institution, their Metropolitan Policy Program. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 